0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, we're looking at the fourth servant song. We're going to come back to the second one just for a minute after I read this text. But question we kind of want to ask is the simple question of why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus born? Why did he come? Why didn't he just drop down out of heaven on good Friday and die on the cross, but he came and lived a perfect life for us? And the reality is you can't separate the cradle from the cross. The womb from the tomb. You can't separate these things. Even his birth from the resurrection, you can't separate them. It's all one event of Jesus accomplishing our salvation on our behalf in our place. And so we sing at Christmas, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so who would have thought though that it would be accomplished in this way? And we've become so familiar with this text, many of us, that we forget to gulp. We forget to be silenced by the text of how astonishing this text truly is. So as we look at this, I want you to see how serious sin is. And then as we look at this, to think about how big is God's love. And then we see God's pattern for exaltation throughout this text. So let's look at this together, beginning at Isaiah 52, verse 13. I'm actually going to read the whole hymn, the whole song. We're going to only preach through verse 3. There's five stanzas, okay? There's five verses, 13 to 15, stanza 1, 1 to 3, 53, that's stanza 2, 4 to 6, stanza 3, 7 to 9, stanza 4, and then 10 to 12. So we're going to look at this the next three weeks. So today we're just looking at stanza one and two, which will be through 53.3. Next week we'll look at four to six and seven to nine. And then we'll look at the third week, the last stanza, verse 10 to 12. But let's kind of take in the whole and I want you to see uh, God's plan for our salvation. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up And shall be exalted. Sounds good, doesn't it? And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or beauty or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, or better translation, with the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the rebels, transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, as we take this in, I pray that, Lord, we would not be a people that would esteem you and consider you of nothing, of no value, that we would not be people this morning that would despise you or reject you or turn away, but that we would exalt you and treasure you And we pray that we'd make much of you. Now take this text and show us Jesus. We ask Holy Spirit. Amen. So we see in this text, this is all about Jesus. This is like the great prophecy of prophecies. There's lots of prophecies in the Old Testament, but this would be like the Mount Everest, the high peak. There's only one other place in Scripture that is quoted more in the New Testament, and that would be Psalm 110. But there are over 30 allusions and direct quotations to Jesus that all tie back to Isaiah 53. It's like this great spine of the Bible of which all the ribs connect to this passage. And what we see here is that Jesus is someone who doesn't look very Instagrammable, does he? He's, he's despised, he's rejected. There's nothing pretty about him. He is just the opposite of Rachel. He's just the opposite of Joseph who are described as beautiful in form and appearance. And with Jesus, we're told no beauty in form or appearance. I mean, and it says when we esteemed him not, it's an accounting term of we measured him up and we said, he's a loser. He's a big fat zero. He accounts for nothing. He he was somebody that we wouldn't have seen as anything special. And then we start reading about all of these sufferings. And you just start begging the question of why, why, why? And then you start to get deeper into the text and verse four, all of a sudden the pronoun starts switching to third person and it's our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our punishment, our chastisement. We're the sheep and we realize it's in our place. This is all vicarious, this is all penal substitution meaning he suffered a penalty for sin and it's vicarious on our behalf it's all voluntary it's all violent and the text ends and it's all victorious you have this great picture at the end of like dividing the spoil like you've just won this great you know you've just conquered this other uh city or village and pillaged them and yet jesus triumphed how all by his death. And so the text moves from substi- substitute, he's silent, and it ends with him being satisfied. God's ways are different than man's ways. This is not how we'd conquer kingdoms, is it? Is this how we'd go and take over and how we'd win the world and establish a kingdom? Jesus did it by becoming weak, by becoming like us in every way, yet without sin. And not only does he does he is he with us in our suffering and understands our plight of suffering, we actually see that he takes sorrows, he takes grief, because he takes the bigger thing. He takes sin. And because of sin, all these other things happen. All the ripple effects break out into our lives of, of suffering, of heartache, of diseases and pains. And yet when you get to Matthew 8:17, and he refers to Jesus doing a miracle, and he talks about him bearing our sins and, and healing us. And the idea is that, you know, you say, well, does Jesus come, does he literally heal people? Uh, does he really literally open eyes or does he just spiritually open eyes? And what's the answer? Yes and yes. He brings shalom, the fullness. And so when his kingdom breaks in in its fullness, we will have full healing. Not just soul, but body. And not just body, but soul. It's everything. And so, what we see is that Jesus bore body and soul, sorrow, suffering, death for our sins. He took it all so he could give us all, you see. And so, if you'd back up with me for a minute, I just want to, I'm jumping over two of the, I'm mainly wanting to mine here in Isaiah 53, but I, There there are four servant songs, and we looked at the one in 42 last week. But in 49, if you look back at Isaiah 49, just for a minute, I want to make two points, and they're important ones, I think. But we're jumping over a couple of these servant songs, which is Isaiah 49, 1 to 7, Isaiah 50, 4 to 9, and then this big one that we're looking at. Well, in Isaiah 49, the servant... We are told, he says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he made my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. This is Jesus. And if you want to read further, read Revelation 19, where the sharp sword is. Jesus is speaking. And it's the living word. And it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. That's Jesus. And it says, he made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant Israel. That's where you need to underline. Israel. Jesus is called Israel. And that's often a stumbling point because we're just not used to that type of language. But you're used to the language you read second Adam or last Adam and you get that and you say yes Jesus is the second Adam. He's the second Israel. He is the true Israel. He is the remnant of one and he's called here Israel and guess who he's sent to? Well just keep reading. Verse 5. He sent me to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. So Israel is being sent to Israel. The Israel of one is sent to the whole because Israel didn't do her job. What was Israel's job? Well, that's verse six. She was to be a light for the nation and her salvation was to, God's salvation was to reach the ends of the earth through her mission, but she failed. So God sends Israel to Israel to save Israel, but that's too light a thing, he says in verse six. It would be too small for God just to bring back Israel because God likes to repeat himself. And what you get in Exodus or in Isaiah is a second Exodus. You get, a, you get this imagery of he's going to bring people just like he brought them out of Egypt. He's going to bring back these people from exile and he uses the language of the Exodus very same language in much of Isaiah. He's going to use that to bring his people back. But then he says, you know, when he, and all these commands to sing, and six times we're called to, commanded to sing in Isaiah, and the passage that Chris Kinzinger likes so much about the ransom shall return with singing, and the ransomed are going to come back from the exile. But guess who's coming with him? A lot more than just Israel. All the nations. All the peoples. He's going to sprinkle many nations and when we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 in Acts 8, who comes to Jesus first that we're told about? It's an Ethiopian eunuch, castrated, not able to go to the temple, gets there, not able to get in. Sorry, buckaroo. We did the tw- 20 questions at the beginning on the way in, and, you know, they ask these medical questions. Sorry, you're out. No way he would have been in and yet he's having this red, this scroll and Philip comes to him and he says, like a lamb to the slaughter, and he's saying, who is this? And Philip tells him, that's Jesus. And now the kingdom is for you. It's to all the nations. It's to eunuchs and people that were cast out and to shepherds. These people that weren't allowed to be on the inside and to the magi that come from afar, God's going to reach all the nations. It's too light a thing for his servant just to reach Israel. This servant who's going to reach many because he comes not to serve, but to serve as the servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the illusion of Isaiah 53 is all there. So keep in mind that when you see Israel, you have to keep in mind which Israel are we talking about? The Israel of one, the perfect Israel. There's only one, that's Jesus who does everything where Israel failed just as the second Adam fulfills everything where Adam failed. Jesus is the perfect Israel. And it makes sense to us because the Christmas story that, that gets neglected every year, and it's probably not gonna be in the reading this year because you get to the Herod slaughtering all the kids and it just doesn't make for a good Christmas Eve service, you know. so we kind of leave that passage out. you know. But the Magi go back a different way And we're told that when they departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, Joseph took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And you're like, wait a minute, that's a quote from Hosea 11.1 and is writing this as a human author and he's referring to Israel, but the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture and what we come to discover is that very saying of Hosea 11.1 1 was not a direct flight. It's not a non, it, this is not a non-stop flight, but has a stop. It has its first stop to Israel. Out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to Israel. But it has a different destination. It's kind of like if you're flying down south, you you always go through Atlanta, you know? But from Atlanta, then you usually go to Houston or, you know, you go to Miami or, you know, you go out. This has an ultimate end, and the end is Jesus. And so, yes, it applies to Israel. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's referring to Israel. But Jesus literally went down to Egypt, and he's the Israel of one. And so he's fulfilling everywhere where Israel's failed. And now he's, it's ding, ding, ding. He's the true Israel. It should should ring all the alarm bells for you. He's the Israel. Here he comes. And he went down to Egypt. And he's the ultimate landing place of that prophecy. Now, look over at chapter 53 now. This passage, I'm just going to look through a little bit here of the first two stanzas. And it starts with, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be, and that should be an adverb, highly exalted or exceedingly exalted, greatly exalted. It's like double language, double exalted. I got a question for you. Does that ring any bells for you? High and lifted up? If, you're, if you know anything about Isaiah, can you remember where it says that God is high and lifted up, or where does it say that in Isaiah? Well, two big places, and the first is: is in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah says, Isaiah six, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. That should ring some bells for us. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, two covered his face, two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and they called to one another back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the whole earth is full of his glory. And God says, that's my son, my servant, will be double high, double lifted up. This is Jesus, and we know Isaiah 6 from John 12, 37, 38 Jesus says, Isaiah saw my glory. So we know Isaiah 6 is Jesus, and here we're seeing high and lifted up language. Who are we talking about? Jesus. How can somebody be high and lifted up unless they are God? They have to be God. Here's the other place it's used. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Who would that be? That has to be God who's high and lifted up. I dwell in the high and holy place and with him who is of contrite and lowly heart to revive the spirit of the lowly. How did he do that? By becoming lowly himself. You see? So this passage begins with telling us about his servant who's going to be exalted. He's going to be king of kings, lord of lords. How's he going to do that? Well, it just goes right into the humiliation of Jesus. And many were astonished at you. And this word astonished is really, I think the NIV does a better job here. It says appalled. Appalled. A more literal rendering of the Hebrew would be horrified. He was an object of horrors. Horrified at how God's going to do this. How is God going to highly double exalt his son? That he's, he's not even going to look like a human being. He's going to be beaten. And when Pilate presents him and says, Behold the man, after crushing the, the crown of thorns and beating it into his skull and beating him senseless, punching him and saying, Prophesy, who hit you? And they keep wailing him with woes. And then they beat him and they beat him. And we're told in Isaiah that they pulled out his beard. We just read that this morning. And we're told here, he doesn't even look human anymore. Beyond human semblance. Beyond children of mankind. And then we get the language of sprinkling. And what is the language of sprinkling? What gets sprinkled all over the place in the Old Testament? It's everywhere. You cover everything. The mercy seat, all this stuff in the temple. I mean, that Holy of Holies was one bloodbath. He will sprinkle many nations. You see, this is high priest language. It's the language of atonement. Jesus makes atonement by offering not an animal as the high priest, but himself. The blood of bulls and goats, it couldn't take away sins. It's like like a credit card or a check. You keep paying for it by credit card or you keep writing a check for it, but eventually they gotta go back to the bank and they gotta make sure that the check is gonna balance and that the credit card statement's gotta come due. Well, all of these animals, God was overlooking sin. They couldn't take away sin and yet people were forgiven. How can that be? Because God was, put it on my tab, put it on my tab. I'll deal with it in the future. And so the saints in the Old Testament are looking ahead. And here we're given the picture of where it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's going to be Jesus. God is going to send His Son because we couldn't do it. And so God did it. This was His plan all along. This is why He came. God had been overlooking transgressions and forgiving sin and yet it was all looking ahead. You see, it it shows you How holy our God is. That he has to crush his son. When you think about mystery of mysteries in the Bible, there are many. But what impresses you the most about the love of God? And I'm telling you, verse 10 of this chapter, and we'll get there. But just to to touch on that for a minute. That's not a good translation. When it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him, it was the desire of the Lord. It's the same word that's used in Song of Solomon. Don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. It's that word. It's the word at the end of Psalm seventy-three. You know whom have I in heaven but you, and earth on nothing I desire beside you. Same word, and God says that He desired to do this. This is God the Father's pleasure. How can God's pleasure be to crush his son? When you think about how Abraham in Genesis 22 is walking with his son and his son says to his dad, I, I, I got the wood and we've got the fire. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say? God, God will provide the lamb. And then he gets to the place and he ties him up. And he's getting ready to take the knife and he's gonna, it's going to crush Abraham to do this. And God stops him. Here there's no stopping. It happened. God provided the lamb. He loved us that much that it pleased him to crush his son. This is what Christmas is all about. And it's really remarkable. You see, this whole thing is all pointing to this atonement that's going to happen. This whole Old Testament is full of signs and symbols of the lamb and the thicket, of the whole temple sacrifice and all of the bloody sacrifices. And Jesus here is the guilt offering. This is the picture of the guilt offering. And this is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 9. And we see the the substitution, scapegoats, lambs being slaughtered, Day of Atonement, transferring our guilt to the sins of the animal. And you'd actually put your hands on the head of the animal and the priest would slit its throat, but your hands were on the head of the animal to say, my transfer of my sins to him. And this is what Hebrews says. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the temple and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, everything under the law, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. So now, we're told in Hebrews, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We come now to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Abel is always crying out for justice, condemnation. The blood of Jesus cries out mercy. No condemnation. You see, the reason kings shut their mouths Is because no king ever did this for his people. That he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords. And we're told in Philippians 2, that's why that reflection quote is in the bulletin. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him, Isaiah 52, 13 and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm sure many of you have heard the song, and if you listen to 91.9, you hear it a lot, (laughs) but it's the, the lyrics to How Many Kings, and the lyrics go like this, Follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all, we've projected a child in a manger? Lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child, is this what we've waited for? Because how many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? How many kings stepped down from their thrones? This one did. That's why the title of the message is, is he exalted or is he despised? And the answer is both. And He's exalted, but he's exalted by being despised being rejected, and then he's exalted in his resurrection, which we'll get to in this verse 10. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. But what I want to ask you this morning is, is he exalted or despised in your life? Is he your king and do you exalt him or just for 75 minutes on Sunday morning? Is he exalted in your life or do we esteem him not the rest of the week? He's not really that important. Really not that valuable when I make my choices. The way that I spend my money, spend my time, who I spend it with. He's not really important. Or is he of significance? Is he of weight to you? You see, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then we'll end with this. We are told in these verses that it says, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it says he grew up like before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, and so on. When the Bible refers to the arm of the Lord, does that mean weak or strong? Would you want to be in an arm wrestling match with God? I mean, when he says the arm of the Lord, it's the power of God on display, full on. And usually when you refer to the arm of the Lord, you're referring to the exodus and delivering his people from captivity and he can, he can use water and, and to, to accomplish his purposes. Divide the sea, all the people walk through and they're crushed. All the Israel, Israelites are saved and all the Egyptians are crushed. God can do that. The arm of the Lord is God's power at work. And here we are told To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so this is a big phrase in Isaiah. So if you look back with me, look back at Isaiah 51, verse 9. We are told, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? That's a reference to Egypt, the Egyptians who pierced the dragon. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep who made the depths of the sea as a way for the redeemed to pass over. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. So here's the reference again to the second exodus. He's gonna do it again. He's gonna bring his people back from captivity, from exile. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They're gonna return with singing. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. He's gonna bring a lot more than Israel back. This time he's bringing the whole world. And he says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who's made like grass? Like he's saying, why do you fear people? Have you forgotten the Lord, your maker? Who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth? You see, the arm of the Lord is powerful. But what we're going to see in Isaiah 53 is the arm of the Lord goes like this. And he stretches out his arm not to create the the heavens and the earth but to redeem his people by shedding his blood and sprinkling many nations to make atonement for their sins so that he could be a perfect priest and perfect king. You see, and then Isaiah 52, 10 tells us to break forth into singing. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And how does God do that? When I'm lifted up, Jesus says, I'll draw all men to myself. His arms are lifted up and and it's not in power, but in weakness. And it looks like a young plant. It looks like a root out of dry ground. It looks like no form, no beauty, no majesty. Nothing that is desirable. Man of sorrows, one who's acquainted with grief. Jesus wasn't born in Bethesda. He wasn't born in Bethesda, Maryland. He was born in Bethlehem. He wasn't raised in North Potomac. He was raised in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, he's not greeted by royalty. It's lowly shepherds on the hillside, placed in that feeding trough, wrapped not in royal satin and silk, meager swaddling clothes. Unimpressive, unpromising, stuff you would leave out of your resume. Jesus had the wrong zip code. He was raised in the wrong neighborhood, but it was all so he could bring in everybody From the lowliest to the highest. And so for us, we're to follow now in his footsteps. Is anything too low for us? I mean, we're to have this attitude in us. We are saved by the sacrifice, but we're to follow in his footsteps. We're to live lives of lowliness, doing the little things, the things that are disregarded, that are esteemed not, that are viewed as zero before the world. That's what Jesus did. And that's what his servants have done through the centuries. And God's been building his kingdom. And he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. Is he your savior? Is he exalted in your life? I hope so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is none like you. You're the only king done all these things taken all our sins and borne them yourself on a cross thank you for setting us free from sin having loosed us from our sins Lord may we be a people that praise you pray that we would be drawn into singing and that we would love you more and we'd hate sin more we ask in your name Amen